0: I think there's a, an intrinsic desire for us to want to better understand ourselves. There's countless self-help books, personality assessments, uh, love language tests, and spiritual gift assessments that are on the market today uh, that are given to, in order to help us understand ourselves better. And this has going, been going on for centuries About the time that Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, the Greek physician Hippocrates developed his four temperaments theory on personalities. And since then, there are countless other theories that have been developed. The truth is, we do need help understanding ourselves. I know this. You know this. God knew this about us. God knew that we would need help grasping the depths of our depravity. He knew that we would, in our fallen state, deceive ourselves into thinking that we're better than we actually are. Without help, there's no way we would understand our need for a Savior or a righteousness that comes from outside ourselves. God's law was given to the Israelites to show them that life works best in obedience that there's joy and blessing in that obedience. But also to show Israel just how sinful they actually were. Paul says in Romans 7.7 7, that if it weren't for the law, he wouldn't have known sin. If the law didn't say not to covet, Paul wouldn't have even known what coveting was. It's not that the law therefore is bad, quite the opposite. The law of God is good in that it makes known the greatest truth of all time. Namely, that we are sinners and we do need a Savior. It makes known the gospel. And even though the law was given specifically to the nation of Israel, Paul says that its purpose was for the whole world. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. God gave Israel a clear and written law. When they broke one of these laws, it was easily recognizable because they had a hard copy of it. So what about those who don't have a hard copy. How in the world would God hold the whole world accountable to his law if Israel was the only one who possessed it? Well, Paul explains that too in Romans 2.15. They show, that is the Gentiles, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So there's a form of God's law that he gave to the Israelites that is actually written on the heart of every man. The law that God gave the Gentiles, that's you and I, was invisible. But the law that God gave the Israelites was visible and abundantly clear. The nation of Israel is Therefore, like a historical personality assessment. If you want to know yourself better, if you want a tangible example of the blessings that come from obedience to God and maybe the curses that come from disobedience, all you have to do is look at Old Testament Israel. Israel is in many ways a historical type of all humanity. Both the Israelites and the Gentiles have got the law, yet both groups have failed to keep the law that it's given to them. Romans 3.9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. When you and I sin, it's just as serious, uh, but it's not so clear. When Israel sins, it's evident because we can tangibly see the laws that they break. It's written down in history. Israel is the prime example of the sinfulness that's actually going on inside of every one of us. We can also better understand the salvific work of God and the purpose of election by looking at Israel as well. We've already seen that both parties, Jew and Greek, are under sin. Both groups need a remedy to the sin problem. By looking at historical Israel, we see what that remedy entails. Salvation from law-breaking and condemnation does not come through better law-keeping. Romans three twenty-eight through 30 says this, For we hold that one is justified by faith, Apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Salvation must come through justification by faith apart from works which means that salvation is open to all nations. This has been made clear in our text this morning, Romans 10, 11 through 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Israel's historical story and our story come together in Jesus. Everything we read about historical Israel in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. All of the guilt that I have ever felt over my sin, even before I knew it was sin, was pointing to the fact that I needed Jesus. Both parties need a remedy. But there's a problem. If anyone should have seen this remedy coming, it should have been Israel. If anyone should have realized that we would need a righteousness beyond what ourselves could produce, it should have been Israel. But they didn't. For the vast majority of historical Israel, and even modern-day Israel, they've missed this truth. They've missed the entire point of their own book. So how could this be? After all, God used Israel to bring about the remedy. Israel was God's testament to the world that he is good and is making a way for salvation among all nations. How in the world could they have missed it? Well, Paul answers that, but it takes him a full three chapters to do so. Tim started last week, but from chapters 9 through 11, Paul is attempting to show the why and the how Israel missed the Messiah. And for Paul, there's a, specific, a very specific way in which Israel missed the entire point of her history. They sought the law without faith in Christ. This brings us to our text today. Today. And if we'll continue to learn from Israel's past mistakes, we might just end up making them, uh, end up avoiding making them ourselves. For Paul, the entire point or goal of the law and Israel's history was to point them to Christ. He says as much in Romans ten three through four. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end or goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Israel failed to see that her law and her history were meant to lead her to Christ for righteousness, not by works. Now in verses 5 through 8 of our text this morning, Paul illustrates this point further. But in order to fully grasp what Paul is attempting to do in these verses, we need to understand how he views the law. For Paul, when he reads the Old Testament, he sees two kinds of righteousness. The righteousness that comes from the law and the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Look with me at verse 5. Paul begins his illustration by quoting Leviticus 18.5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. And here's the quote. That a person who does the commandments shall live by them. In other words, Moses says that perfect obedience to the law would obtain eternal life. If a person were to trust God and by his grace somehow never sin, they would be saved. Sounds pretty good, right? Perfect faith with zero sin leads to eternal life. There's a problem. Both Paul and the Old Testament writers know that a righteousness attained in this manner is impossible. Paul pounds this truth home all throughout Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 verses 9 and 10, both Jew and Greek are under sin. None is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And lest we think that Paul pulled this idea out of thin air, First Kings 8.46 says the same thing. For there is no one who does not sin. If we are to attain eternal life, we must meet God's ultimate demand of perfect faith without sin. It's important that you don't miss this. Without this demand, none of the Old Testament sacrifices or the cross of Christ make much sense. And while Paul sees this type of righteousness taught in Scripture, he also knows that there has only ever been one to attain it successfully. This type of righteousness was too hard for Moses, it was too hard for the prophets. It has been too hard for anyone in the history of the world to attain except one, Christ himself. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, three, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul says, sure, you can attain righteousness through the law if you want to go that route. But you better be absolutely sure because it's going to require you to keep the whole law in perfect faith. If you think you can do what only one person in the history of the world has ever done, you can try, but you'll soon find it to be a hopeless endeavor. For Paul, returning to the law is futile, since the sacrifices for the atonement under the Sinai Covenant pointed ahead to the sacrifice of Christ. If the Old Testament sacrifices no longer atone for sin, and one tries to secure righteousness by the law, then one must keep the law in its entirety to be saved. There's no longer a safety net to turn to when you fall. If you ignore Christ's sacrifice, there's not another sacrifice that you can turn to. So you better be absolutely confident in your ability to keep the whole law. That's what leads us to the next section of our text this morning Romans 6 through 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Paul knows what a hopeless endeavor trying to earn a righteousness based off of works of the law can be. Which is why he immediately contrasts it with the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. And he does so by quoting Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30 verses 11 through 14 say this. For this commandment that I have commanded you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea and bring it, bring it to us that we may hear and do it but the word is very near you it is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it did you catch the similarity paul sees the text in deuteronomy as pointing to christ for our righteousness. Do you see how he weaves that quote into our text this morning? For Paul, the Deuteronomy text is actually pointing to the faith, the word of faith that we proclaim in Romans ten eight, which is faith in Christ. But how does Paul arrive at this conclusion? If it were that plain and simple, surely the Israelites would have seen it too. We have to remember that before Paul met Jesus, he was a Pharisee. He knows the Old Testament scriptures like the back of his hand. He had most, if not all of them, memorized by heart. But that still doesn't explain how Paul sees this Deuteronomy text as as pointing to Christ. There were thousands of Israelites who had the scriptures memorized, and yet they still missed it. The fact is, we don't know how Paul is able to see the Christological link in this passage outside of the Holy Spirit's illumination of this truth to him. But here's what I do know. Paul's expertise in the scriptures combined with the Holy Spirit's inspiration makes him one of the foremost Old Testament scholars in the history of the world. And so I'm going to trust his exegesis over my own any day of the week let me walk you through what I, what I think Paul is doing here and how he arrives at this conclusion. Romans 10.4 is the centralized point of emphasis of the gospel that Paul is preaching. Paul knows all too well from Israel's history and his own experiences that everyone is condemned in sin. All have sinned. No one is righteous. All deserve the just wrath of God. So when Paul sees Moses' statement saying the commandment is not too hard for you, he knows that something is is not adding up. It is hard. There are days when I sin before my feet even hit the ground in the morning. There are days when I sin and I don't even realize it until several hours later once the Holy Spirit convicts me of it. There is no way that I can keep the whole law in perfect faith when I can sin without even thinking about it. It's almost as if sin is in my nature. The stuff I want to do, I don't do. The stuff I hate doing is the very thing that I end up doing. This law is too hard for me. But secondly, when Paul uses the words in verse 6, do not say in your heart, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. So catch this. When when Paul is writing his letter to the Romans, he has Deuteronomy 30 in his mind. But while he is writing Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 9 jumps in there as well. This guy's familiarity with the Scriptures is incredible. And the context behind Deuteronomy 9 verse 4 is important. God had warned Israel about presuming that their inheritance of the promised land was based on their own righteousness. This context underscores what Paul is saying throughout the book of Romans. Namely, that a righteousness through faith prohibits all boasting in one's own righteousness. God gave Israel the promised land, not based on anything that they had done or anything that they would do, but solely on his grace. And so Paul sees justification through faith alone working in the same way. And so when he quotes Deuteronomy, along with his own comments about it, It indicates that righteousness depends on God's work alone. He says, we didn't bring Christ down to earth, nor could we. Christ didn't come down based on anything we did. God did that. God sent Jesus to earth because of our inability in attaining righteousness on our own. Nor is there anything that we could do that would cause Jesus to be raised from the dead. Paul's use of Deuteronomy here serves as a reminder that faith doesn't concentrate on human capabilities, but what God has done through Jesus Christ. Paul knows that there is nothing we as humans could do that would ever result in a righteousness of our own. Paul knew it. Moses knew it. Wait, didn't Moses say that the commandment was doable? That it wasn't too hard? Well, yeah, he did. But Paul knows that just a few verses before Moses said that, he says this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that you may live. According to Paul, Moses knew that perfect obedience of Israel would only come when God fulfilled his new covenant promise and totally changed the hearts of the people. And so when Paul reads Deuteronomy chapter 30, he thinks, Jesus, that's him. He's the one that's going to do this, he's the one that's going to make this come to pass. After all, Jesus said his blood was the blood of the new covenant. For Paul, through Christ, perfect justification and sanctification will someday be possible. And the commandments will then, in fact, be easy. Not because of us, but because of him. I think this is how Paul is able to substitute Christ in his usage of Deuteronomy 30. Every time that Moses mentions the commandments as being easy or doable, Paul sees Christ. The life of Christ that he lived on earth in his risen life is the substitute of our obedience to the commandments. That's the key to justification. That's the point Paul is making in Romans 10:4 which these verses reinforce, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Though the commandment is too hard for us, it was not too hard for Christ. And God credits Jesus' obedience to the commandment to those who believe through faith alone. There is a day coming when Christ will be both our righteousness and our sanctification. Moses taught that we must have a perfect righteousness that is doable. The problem is no one does it. That's where Paul sees Christ. Christ will come. Christ will live, die, rise, and be the perfect obedience for us and credit it to us. And so we can be justified by the substitutionary work of Christ. And when the new covenant is finally fulfilled, we will one day with perfectly circumcised heart be able to obey God completely with the greatest of ease. According to Paul, what Moses was teaching was the way to faith in Christ for righteousness. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we proclaim most of israel missed this truth they missed the fact that true righteousness would only come from another that is christ jesus they missed the fact that justification would be found through faith in christ alone not through better law keeping the law was never meant to save us. The law was supposed to serve as a diagnostic to our sin problem. I like to refer to myself as a retired athlete. Um, and uh, I still possess some athletic ability, but not as much as I used to because I'm retired. Well, two years ago, I was playing basketball at my former church with a group of students, and this particular group of students were basketball bigwigs at Central High School, and they asked to play three-on-three. So I obliged, and uh, the goal I noticed, uh, I don't know if they noticed, but I noticed right away, was set to nine and a half feet, and I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to teach these kids a lesson. And so I do. Uh, I, I come out of retirement for a brief stint. Uh, I throw down some monster dunks. I do some smack talking and then uh, feeling pretty good about myself. All this is in khakis, by the way, because uh, I was working. Um, and I do some smack talking, then I call for the oop, right? So I look at my buddy that's at the point. I'm like, so he throws it. It's perfect. I come in. I'm getting ready. I've got a mean look on my face. I go to jump, but I don't leave the ground. And uh, I just kind of do one of these skids, and they're looking at me, and I'm standing there like, something is wrong, right? Uh, What what had happened, see, was um, I jumped, and my knee kind of went, like this, but never left the ground. And so I called for uh, the only adult who was in the gym. She looked at me and I was like, I'm going to need you. Right. Uh, Amanda makes me uh, go to the emergency room and we go to the emergency room Uh, because it happened at church. I was able to file uh, for work comp. They told me, they're like, Hey, make sure you tell them right off the bat that it's a work comp issue. So I'm like, okay, and uh, so I'm filling out the forms to the best of my ability, and she says, is this a work-related issue? I said, yes. She goes, what were you doing? I said, playing basketball, and all the ER techs like, think I'm like some like, NBA player, so they come running in, and it's, it's just me. Like, I thought you said it was work comp. It, it, well, it's a long story, right? So this is not my first rodeo. Right? This is not my first knee injury, and I knew that what they were going to end up doing was an MRI uh, to tell me what the problem was. I didn't know what the problem was. I just knew that my knee didn't work the way it used to and that my kneecap was well north of where it should have been. <laughs> so they, they tell me, hey, they take some x-rays, nothing's broken, yay. Uh, then they take me back to the MRI machine. And the MRI technician is not a nurse. He does not care about your feelings, by the way. So he throws me on the bed, and he's like, I need you to lay still. And I'm like, that would have been a lot better if you were more gentle, sir. Um, so he, what happens is the MRI results come in, and we're there for a number of hours. Uh, it, it lasted all night. I, we finally made it home about 5 a.m. But he says, the MRI results came in. I said, what a say?" Is you've got a complete tear of your patellar tendon, along with some other minor tears on the, on the other side. Up until the MRI results came in, I didn't know what the problem with my knee was. But after the MRI results came in, I knew what the problem was. The problem with the law is a lot like the MRI that I had done. The MRI showed the doctors what the problem was but the MRI machine itself was incapable of fixing my knee. I needed more than just a diagnostic. I needed a surgeon. I needed someone with more skills than my own to open me up and fix the problem inside me. That's the truth that Paul proclaims. That's the word of faith. That's the gospel. The law was the diagnostic God used to show us the problem. Jesus is the surgeon that would actually be able to fix our sin problem. And this truth, as Paul sees it, is written all over the Old Testament. But this truth requires a response. It would have done me zero good to get the MRI uh, and find out what the problem was and, and not have surgery. I I would have known what the problem was. But without surgery, I would still be incapacitated. The only right response to the MRI results was to find a surgeon to fix me. And so for the remainder of our text this morning, Paul is going to show us what a proper response to the truth of the law that makes known to us should be. Verses 9 through 13 help explain verse 8. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith involves the doctrinal confession that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Confessing Jesus' lordship indicates his divinity. And for Paul, the belief in the lordship of Jesus and his resurrection are mutually inclusive. Since Jesus was appointed Lord at his resurrection... You can't have one without the other. And so this confession is absolutely necessary for salvation. Romans chapter 4 makes it clear that genuine faith manifests itself in a belief of the, that the life-giving God raised Jesus from the dead. This salvation, though, isn't just a future salvation that will one day come to those who have faith. This salvation is present now. Now. For those who confess that Jesus was appointed Lord at his resurrection are saved now and will be saved on the day of judgment that is to come. And just like the lordship of Christ and his resurrection are inseparable for Paul, confession with the mouth and belief with the heart are inseparable as well. In verse 9, Paul says that the confession with the mouth comes before belief in the heart. But that is not the way we typically think about it. We tend to think that confession and belief are in reverse order. And Paul knows this. His rearrangement of that order is pulled from his citation of Deuteronomy 30. But then in verse 10, in order to remove any ambiguity, Paul says that belief with the heart actually does come before confession with the mouth. A genuine confession is always rooted in a heart conviction. The word of faith is something that is both proclaimed and believed, not just once, but day in, day out for the rest of our lives. Raising your hand and walking an aisle at VBS one time isn't evidence of truly saving faith. If, if Jesus isn't Lord of your life, ruling and reigning on a daily basis, then walking an aisle and saying a one-time prayer didn't mean much. This was the problem with Old Testament Israel. They thought that since they were Jews and practiced the law that they'd be saved. They thought that since they said the right things and they did the right things, that they would find eternal life. But Paul says that true faith is more than words. True faith is rooted deep in the heart. R.C. Sproul once said, you are not justified by a profession of faith. You are justified by the possession of it. So if Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, and righteousness can't be attained on our own, then faith in Christ is our only hope for justification. Justification. And just in case we need more proof, Paul returns to the same quote from Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen that he used in chapter 9. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord will be saved both now and forever. Moses knew this. Paul knows this. And Isaiah wrote about it too. Righteousness isn't reserved for the Jews. Righteousness is accessible to anyone who would have faith. This means that God's purpose of election will include people from every tribe, every nation, and tongue. Not because of anything that we did or could do, but solely through the work of Christ on our behalf. Returning to the quote by scroll, he, go, by scroll, he goes on to say, the only, only the Holy Spirit can change the disposition of the soul and regenerate that person who is dead in sin and trespasses. We can't force that. And when we do, we put people at everlasting peril when we give them a false sense of security. God had chosen Israel long ago. God gave Israel the law, but it wasn't meant to save them. The good news of the gospel is that God's plan of salvation has come and is open to anyone who would believe. Salvation was never meant to be for the Jews only. This is what Paul has been saying since chapter 3. Justification comes through faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus has done what we couldn't do. He's the surgeon we needed to fix the sin problem that's deep inside of us. Justification won't come through better law keeping. It doesn't matter how many verses you have memorized or how many attendance stickers you get at Sunday school. I don't think Jesus is concerned with that. That doesn't matter how much money you give to the church or the fact that you only watch movies that come from right now media. It doesn't matter if you're a convicted serial killer or your co workers think you're a nice person. There is no distinction. There is no distinction between Jew or Greek, no distinction between killer and sweet little grandma. Everyone is under sin. There isn't anyone who does not sin. And one day, everyone is going to have to stand before the Lord and answer for his or her actions and even their thoughts. What matters is the heart conviction and proclamation that you do, in fact, believe that Jesus is Lord. For Paul, this is the truth that Israel missed. My hope and my prayer is that you don't miss it. My prayer is that God would open your eyes to faith and that you would boldly proclaim Christ as Lord. Because it's his work alone that matters. You can stop trying to earn your righteousness on your own. You won't succeed anyway. Our only hope is Christ. That's the word of faith that Paul says Moses was proclaiming. That's the word of faith that Paul proclaimed. And that's what we proclaim to you this morning.